And emerging from the history vault, here is our resident historian, Felix Bennell. And today, the story of a rediscovered photo album that belonged to the great uncle of a Seattle family who was a Navy flyer at Sand Point nearly 100 years ago, at the very same time that the legendary Naval Air Station was taking shape on the shores of Lake Washington. You got a peek at it, huh? Yeah, these are some pretty amazing photos. You know, a lot of us have old family photo albums stashed away somewhere, and the picture inside are probably pretty interesting to us. Maybe, you know, there's uh, Uncle uncle whoever they're standing. This one's a little different. I first saw a few of the images, images that Carol Mandel posted on Facebook late last week, and so I reached out to her right away. The photos were taken by her great uncle, a man named Ludwig Schroeder, who was her grandmother's brother. He was born in Seattle in 1904, graduated from Lincoln High School in Wallingford, and then from the UW. By 1929, he was in the Navy and flying from the fairly new Naval Air Station out there at Sand Point, or Magnuson Park nowadays. Now, Lieutenant Schroeder was also an amateur photographer, which is why so many of the photos in these albums are taken in midair or out on the runway or on the water. You know, newspaper photos that I've seen from this time generally don't get nearly as close to the action as these photos do. They're pretty amazing. Now, um, Lieutenant Schroeder continued in the Naval Reserve into the 1930s, he was flying a Navy plane near Long Beach, California in 1934 when it ran out of fuel and crashed in the ocean. He didn't survive. He was only 30 years old. Um, so Carol Mandel says her grandparents and her parents never really talked about Uncle Ludwig very much. Um, she told me she didn't really think about him at all until she recently returned to Seattle and then moved into her parents' old house. Um, I didn't even know what he looked like. And you know, my mother had these photo albums stashed away in a drawer when we discovered them. And the first thing my daughter, who is also a pilot, uh, said to me was, I want those. Don't give them to anybody else. I'm not sure if you caught that, but Carol's daughter is an airline pilot, meaning she's the fourth generation pilot in the family. So you had Uncle Ludwig back in the 20s. Um, Carol's father was a blimp pilot during World War II, and Carol married a Navy pilot. So these, these are this is a flying family. Now, her, uh, they're not eager to donate the photo albums yet, but they did share several of the images with me, which I'll post later at My Northwest. There's one on my Facebook page right now. Pictures show planes with wheels on the grass, runway at Sandpoint, float planes in Lake Washington, planes in midair, even a few plane crashes. I've never seen anything like this from Sandpoint from this era. This is right after World War I and up through World War II. That's when people on the West Coast depended on men and flying machines for defense. I know this country's defended now. I know there's radar systems out there and there's missiles hidden away that are taking care of us. But in those days, the guys were stationed right here in the middle yeah. of all of us going back and forth to work, and, and we'd see them flying around. Now, there's great history in these pictures. Um, our friend Lee, Lee Corbin... It's already identified several of the aircraft pictured, and one image in particular uh, really stands out for Carol. I swear one of them looks like, it, in, in a full flight suit, looks like it could be a woman. And I thought, oh, Amelia Earhart. Well, it turns out when she did visit Seattle, she did not fly in and out of Sandpoint. I found that out. So she took a train. And there's a guy in jodhpurs, and then there's a businessman standing there holding his overcoat. So that one's going to require a little bit more research to figure out who that uh, uh, lady yeah. flyer is back there in 1930. Now, I shared a few of the images with another good friend of the show, the aviation and maritime historian uh, Matt McCauley of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance. He described them as priceless. They give us a snapshot into a period of time in the very beginnings of what became uh, Naval Air Station Seattle at Sand Point that we have, have never seen. It's amazing how few photos are in circulation from, from that era. And... Both from the local angle, obviously it's it's hugely significant, but it's also an important part of the, the national story of the origins of naval aviation because that's when things were really kind of getting getting up and going. Now, one of the things Lieutenant um, Schroeder also took photos of was when a giant Soviet airplane visited Sandpoint in October 1929, the ANT-4. 
It was on what was probably called a goodwill flight, later described as a propaganda flight. Yeah. Um, it was flying from Moscow to New York. It came down from Alaska on floats. It stopped at Sandpoint so it could change out its floats for wheels. Now, it's one of the first aircraft to be made from all aluminum. It's not wood or metal covered in fabric. It looks pretty rudimentary, and I would describe it as looking very Soviet, too. It's like it's yes. not an American plane. <laughs> the aluminum skin was corrugated. You know, it wasn't smooth, but it was big. It had visual impact. So for a few years after the Soviet ANT-4 visited Seattle, that's when Boeing introduced its first airliner, the Model 247, also all-metal construction, also two engines. And you fast forward to the Cold War decades later, and the Soviets began to claim that Boeing engineers had stolen a bunch of ideas from the ANT-4 while it was at Sandpoint in 1929, parked no. in the hangar. And then those Boeing guys stole those ideas and used it to develop the 247. Huh. So to get to the bottom of all this, I went to cor Boeing corporate archivist and historian Mike Lombardi. Mike says the timing just doesn't add up. The Soviet ANT-4 visited Sandpoint in October 1929. About six months after that, this is before that airliner Boeing built, Boeing rolled out a new plane that they called the Monomail. What Boeing introduced was uh, an all-metal, low-wing monoplane, retractable landing gear, um, smooth-skin construction, very aerodynamic, and was uh, arguably several years ahead of what that ANT was. He's being polite. The ANT looks prehistoric, almost barbaric. The yeah. monomail looks like something from the future. Now, he says the timeline and the advanced design of the monomail, that pretty much debunks those Soviet claims. You know, looking at it, you know, putting on your thinking cap there, putting on our, our historian hat and really doing some investigative work, it, uh, there probably wasn't any influence on Boeing or what Boeing was designing. So there are so many stories to tease out of these photographs. It's two big photo yeah. albums. She has all his flying records and everything. They're not sure. Maybe it'll ultimately go to the Museum of Flight someday or something like that, but the family's going to enjoy it for now. And um, I haven't been to the to Sandboy in, in a while, but are there any... Uh exhibits there or uh, you know, little yeah. signs with some of these old photographs. The Friends of Magnuson Park do a good job. There's some interpretive panels in some of the lobbies of some of the buildings. There's that big monument right out front and this year is the centennial of the Around the World flight, which left from yeah. Sandpoint in April and returned in September. There's going to be a bunch of stuff happening out there in September, but my fantasy is that Sandpoint would become not just a national heritage area. I think you could put a national park unit there, sort of the cradle of Northwest Aviation. Boeing delivered their first planes there. It's the very first legitimate airport. Boeing Field didn't come along until 1928. Sandpoint yeah. was the only airport in town from 1920 to 1928, then had this amazing Navy base for all these decades. So, And it's just an epic location. It's amazing. <laughs> oh, God, and these, and these old photos where you see like the trees yeah. and the lake right there, and it's just, you can sort of recognize the shape of the topography, but it's, uh, yeah. It's and there's still unmatched. some wrecks in the water off the runway, right? There are. Matt McCauley, the guy who we heard from, oh, he's yeah. the guy who recovered a couple of those Navy hell divers back in the 80s, and yeah. one of those that he and his buddy recovered 40 years ago is about to fly later this year wow. at a museum in Colorado, so it's got to be in it for the long haul with so. this stuff. Historian Felix Spinell, all his features are at MyNorthwest.com. Thank you, Felix. Thanks, Dave. And now, Felix Spinell, part duh. <laughs> it was 50, the Scooshy edition. <laughs> it was 50 years ago today when one of Seattle's most enduring literary characters, who also became the Sonic's original big head mascot, was born. It has been, yes, 50 years, hard to believe I know, since the book <laughs> Weedle on the Needle was published. And so our historian, Felix Spinell, caught up with the author for a look back at the Weedle's origin. Now, are you familiar with the Weedle on the Needle? Uh, yes. Did, I, you, did you read the book to your kids? I never read the book to my kids. Okay. Sully, Weedle, Weedle on the I'm Needle? I'm familiar with it, yeah. We okay. actually, I think I got it down in Portland. Was it read to you as a child? Uh, no. Okay, all right. Well, anyway, for anyone who's not familiar with Weedle on the Needle, we'll explain it in a moment, but today marks a half century since he made his debut in the pages of a locally written, locally published, even locally printed book. 
When's that last time that happened? Um, talked to the author and publisher, former Seattleite Stephen Cosgrove yesterday. He said he had the idea came to him in late 1973. He was doing some creative work with an ad agency, and the client was the Space Needle. At the end of a meeting with the Space Needle people, Cosgrove told everyone out of the blue he'd just written a book about the Space Needle. The woman running the meeting asked what the book was called. Cosgrove told me he made up the title on the spot, the Seuss-like Weedle on the Needle, because it rhymes. And he had to make up the title because he hadn't actually written a book. <laughs> so then the woman asked what Weedle on the Needle was about, so he had to make up that, too. I said, oh, it's about a uh, Sasquatch-like creature that lives on top of the Space Needle. And this was on a Friday, and she said, well, I'd love to see it. Can you bring it in? And I said, sure. And she said, can you bring it in on Monday? And I went, oh, sure. <laughs> So I went home that night, and I wrote the story Weedle on the Needle, just about exactly as it is now. He also got help that Sunday with an illustration of the Weedle from an artist named Robin James. She's the daughter of Bob James, the guy who designed the Bon Marche star. All this stuff's connected, Dave. Wow. Anyway, the Space Needle folks loved the story and the illustration so much they placed a huge order, so Stephen Cosgrove very quickly had to become a publisher. And the story is sort of a local mythology. It's a children's fairy tale to explain why there's a red light blinking on top of the Space Needle. So the wheel, the wheel is big and orange and fluffy. He's a creature who's lived here for thousands of years undisturbed. The rise of the modern city makes him mad, and the sound of all the happy people whistling hurts his ears. So he grabs a bunch of clouds and climbs to the top of the Space Needle to make it rain so people will be sad and will stop whistling. Oh. Now, we don't have time to tell the whole story here, but this is Stephen Cosgrove describing the happy ending. And finally, the mayor comes to him and says, what can we do? And he explains, and so they build him a great big pair of earmuffs to block the sound. And he goes back to sleep on top of the Space Needle, and as he sleeps every night, his red nose blinks. You know, it's an origin story. It's wonderful. Oh, it, 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 and it really stuck. Now, Weedle on the Needle, a bunch of other local titles published by the company Cosgrove created, Serendipity, was a colossal success. Paperback books were cheap, you know, dollar ninety-nine cents a piece, available everywhere. He thinks the Weedle sold something like 2.5 million copies. Wow. Now, the character became ubiquitous. They made a costume. Actually, Bob James' wife, Irene, made a costume, and they started wearing it at Sounders games at the old Memorial Stadium. Then around 1976, Stephen Cosgrove went to the offices of the Sonics and asked Coach Bill Russell if the Weedle could become the team mascot. Russell was skeptical but open-minded. You come once. If they like you, we'll do it. If, you, if they don't, I don't want you back here again. I said, that's okay, because if you don't want us, I'll just buy a ticket and I'll just sit up in the audience with the costume. And he <laughs> roared. He thought that was funny. So we did the one game, and people went nuts. And so the Weedle became the mascot for the Sonics. And that was just in time for those two amazing championship seasons, where they, the championship season in 79. But the Weedle was there throughout the late 70s into the 80s. At some point, they, uh, when new ownership kind of did away with the Weedle-Sonic connection. But it's the 50th anniversary this year. Stephen Cosgrove will be in Seattle in April to launch a new Weedle sequel. He'll be at the Seattle Center in August for a big event as well. And the book is still in print. And if you haven't read it, it's really cool. Or if you read it as a child and want to share it with your kids or grandkids, it's a great little local story that still has some nice sticking power. And he literally wheedled his way into that mascot he, job, didn't I, he? I just love that that urge to just sort of make up a fib like that then have to follow through with it over the weekend. Sounds like, you know, sounds familiar to me a little bit, Dave. Felix Bunnell. We have a special Valentine's Day commentary from Angela Poe Russell at 7.35 this morning. But first, we're going to talk about immigration and border security, which is going to be a big issue in the presidential election. So, we talked with Washington Post journalist Nick Miroff, co-author of an article headlined Trump versus Biden on immigration, 12 charts comparing U.S. border security. So this is packed with data. 
So we wanted to get Nick to summarize exactly what that all means. There has been, no debating this, a significant increase in illegal migration across the border since President Biden took office. So I asked Nick if they could pinpoint the reason. One of the things we can certainly point to is when Biden took office, he immediately rolled back a number of the restrictions that that the Trump administration had used. Um, uh, maybe listeners will remember like the remain in Mexico policy. Right. Uh, his administration announced a pause on uh, ICE deportations. Um, so I think, you know, there was a general message of lower enforcement. Remember, even on the campaign trail, Biden had agreed with other Democrats who said that uh, border crossing should be decriminalized. Um, and so there was a perception and, you know, that that the enforcement posture of the United States government had changed, that things were more open. And within weeks, we saw the number of people coming across the border uh, shoot up. And initially, that was mostly unaccompanied minors. Um, uh, you, you'll you'll remember there in the in the spring of 2021, that was really the first border crisis that the Biden administration faced, which was, you know, these these border stations overcrowded with children and teenagers coming across without any parents. Now, did he do this just because he felt it was the humane thing to do or was he hamstrung in some way by Congress? You know, I I think that there had been such a revulsion at many of Trump's um, uh, harsher policies, most famously the zero tolerance family separations that, um, you know, that the Trump administration attempted and, and separated thousands of, of children from their parents. I think that there was a lot of pressure on Biden coming in to do something dramatic, to, to make a clean break with, with you know, what the, what Trump had done. Mm-hmm. He promised to, to shut down those, you know, camps along the the Rio Grande, where uh, asylum seekers were were kind of waiting in squalor on the Mexican side, and so when he got in, um, you know, he was really acting on, I think, in a lot of ways, what his base wanted him to do, which was, um, you know, take things in a in a completely different direction. He did, and you know, combine that combined with some of the other existing pressures, like, you know, the the economic impacts of the pandemic. The, you know, the growth of social media, the activity of all these smuggling organizations in Mexico, all these factors really created this, uh, you know, this this massive migration surge that is that, you know, we've, we've never seen anything like it. We're hearing from Washington Post reporter Nick Miroff. His piece is headline Trump versus Biden on immigration. And so the president's actions have now backfired, even in cities run by Democrats like uh, New York and Chicago because of all the migration to the point that Biden himself is claiming he will now close down the border if uh, Congress lets him. So I asked Nick whether that's whether that's true, whether he could actually do that. It's it's really not. And, uh, you know, Trump tried to do it um, uh, through executive action and ran ran into a lot of resistance in the courts. And so I think that, you know, the general consensus is that that Congress needs to pass tougher laws um, even the House Republicans who who rejected the Senate uh, compromise bill, you know, they had passed their own version without any Democratic support. And that, too, had had measures that would have made it uh, easier for the executive to 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 basically shut down the border to as- asylum seekers, because that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about shutting down the border to commerce or to legal trade and travel. We're talking about shutting it down to uh, asylum seekers right. and others who are coming across illegally. 
Now, um, you know, if 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 it were so easy, I think I think again Trump would have done it, and and this uh, by you know bipartisan bill uh, was was designed to give the president new authorities to be able to do it and and withstand challenges in uh, in federal court. Now, the challenges we're talking about are that U.S. law requires that we take asylum seekers, create, uh, pr- provided they're truly uh, fleeing from basically mortal consequences, right? Sort of. And so, so we are, you know, we are, have, have signed international agreements and there are protections in our own laws that basically say that if someone sets foot on U.S. soil and says that they would face, you know, torture or persecution, um, uh, if they are deported back to their home country, they have a right to, uh, you know, to be heard mm-hmm. and to be screened for the, you know, the possibility that that is true. And, you know, this fairly generous protection in our law, you know, was was in part put in place because of what occurred during World War II when 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 um, when people were were sent back, you know, to Nazi Germany and to and to to concentration camps, and 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 so, you know, we were. You know, we're trying to, um, you know, prevent something like that from happening again. But uh, you know, in the modern era, this has become a major uh, vulnerability to the to the U.S. immigration system, and and it's pretty widely known that even if you don't have a valid asylum claim, you can come across, say, you fear persecution, and it may be, you know, years until you actually, you know, have to go to court, and and even if you are rejected, you know, there's there's a relatively low likelihood that you'll even be deported. Okay, so short of going back to Trump's tactics and basically separating kids from their families, is there any way to control this surge? Well, I mean, I I mean, I think we got to look at what was in that border supplemental. Um, They were coming together around some, you know, initial steps to tighten these asylum rules um, to create a kind of uh, you know, trigger mechanism that that would allow the president to expel uh, migrants if the, if you know if if border crossings reached a certain level. Um, and there was a there was a massive you know bump in funding for for ICE for Immigration and Customs Enforcement that would have expanded detention capacity. A lot of this, and you know, in the end, also comes down to detention capacity. If if we simply don't have enough beds, you know, to hold people who who are potentially eligible for deportation, then they end up getting released as well. So it isn't only the backlog in the asylum system; it's also a capacity issue within the immigration system itself. Nick Mira from the Washington Post. We also talked about the perception issue. Biden was perceived as being much softer on immigration than Trump, and so when people get across the border, they send word back home saying, "Hey, this is easy; we can get across." And uh, we had a much longer interview, so we've posted the whole thing on the Ross Files podcast. That'll be up at uh, 9.30 this morning on MyNorthwest.com. It is Valentine's Day. Many of you will be snuggling up in front of the TV for the new season of Love is Blind, sort of the romantic version of The Voice. But why do we watch these type of shows? That brings us to today's commentary, sponsored by Wafed Bank. Here's Angela Poe Russell with State of the Union Relationships Edition. If you think about it, dating shows, they've been around for a while. I grew up watching The Dating Game, Love Connection, and eventually learned what in the world Whoopi meant. But these days, there are more than a dozen options. You got The Bachelor, Golden Bachelor, Married at First Sight, Love Island. You get the point. 
As dating shows expanded, it made me wonder what our love life is like in reality, like our actual life. The bottom line is things don't seem so fairy tale. More people than ever are single. In 1990, 29% of folks didn't have a partner. In 2019, the number shot up to 38%. And now, according to the Census Bureau, the number of single people has jumped to almost half. Now, some would argue that this is a good thing. There's even a website to celebrate singleness. Multiple surveys from credible institutions have found almost half of single people, they don't even want to date. They don't want a romantic relationship. The top two reasons, too busy or because it didn't work in the past. Meanwhile, the dating apps are busier than ever. And all those dating shows I mentioned, highly rated and doing well. And that makes the state of our unions a little confusing. So what gives? Well, perhaps we are in love with the romance of a relationship versus the reality. And the reality is maybe love in 2024 is more complicated. I mean, look at what could go wrong. Taylor Swift, she's made a career of highlighting that. Meanwhile, we're being trained with beige flags and red flags. There are high divorce rates, custody battles, and that evil word compromise. Because in 2024, we do not settle. Add in social media and those dating apps where the grass is always greener and there are plenty of fish. Something you don't like? All you have to do is swipe, right? But wait, once you're past that, you might be judged on your activism. According to Bumble Dating Trends, singles today expect their partners to not only care about social and political causes, but to actively engage. That's exhausting. So it just might be possible that dating shows are this generation's escape. At some point though, we do have to reckon with reality. Public health experts have sounded the alarm about America's loneliness problem. At the heart of it, humans are wired for connection. Technology and these new social norms made it easier and harder at the same time. So this Valentine's Day, I wish us all more love connections, however you manifest them. Until then, I know where you can find a happy ending, at least until the credits roll. Angela Poe Russell, State of the Union, Relationships Edition. With backup dancing by Dave Ross. And uh, share. <laughs> and now here he is, our relationship consultant with a PhD in romance, G. Scott. How'd you earn that PhD, G? Because <laughs> I'm poor. Hungry and determined. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> What's happening, y'all? I don't know. Give us the rules for Valentine's Day. Here's the things that you don't do. All right. I'm not saying what you can do. That's what you're good at, Dave. I'm telling you, Colleen, what folks don't do. Okay. Number one, don't ignore the day. Yeah. Whatever you do, That's don't good. ignore the day. Make sure you acknowledge it, please, because it could lead to disappointment. Number two, no last-minute planning, Sully. It makes life hard for you. It brings added stress that you don't need in your life. So that means no going on the side of the road and getting the balloons and the chocolate. No going home with the Bartels bag yeah. still. His partners and it's can still tell. wet. They know when yeah. you just showed up and it was last minute. Number three, bingo, don't give the generic gift. Whatever it is. You know what generic is. It's subjective. Whatever that is, don't do it. Okay. Number four, don't overspend. 
Like, one of the things I think that happens is, is people think that the more that you spend on this day, the more, the, the better the celebration is going to be. I don't suggest that. Stay within your budget. That way you aren't mad. Some of us right now are mad at Valentine's Day because Valentine's Day didn't go like we thought and we spent too much money. I'm talking to myself. Um, <laughs> oh, no, gee. Uh, <laughs> You're already in trouble? It's only 8 a.m. I know. Um, <laughs> don't forget to express the appreciation. Yeah. So whatever you do today, whatever, whatever your plans are, make sure you make it a point to express appreciation. This next one is important. Don't brag too much and don't be boastful. Be mindful that there are people that have lost loved ones mm. that are no longer here, and there are people that are just single themselves and, you know, kind of lonely. Make sure you keep that in mind. Be cognizant of that. Um, here's another one. Be careful not to celebrate your ex-boo more than your current boo. How in the world does that happen? It, very simple. It'll happen like this. So my child's mother, who we're not together with anymore, I got her flowers. I got her uh-huh. candy. I got her all those good things. And then you give your current significant other, you just give them a card. Well... You, you see how that works? You know? Is that what got you in trouble before 8 a.m. this morning? This ain't about me. Okay, I just, yeah. I'm worried about you, G. I mean, if you're going to be giving do's and don'ts lists, well, I see, need to know the context. You know, but that's that. what's been happening with my therapy. My therapy has me telling the truth. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. Um, here's the next one. Uh, don't spoil your coworkers more than your significant other. Some folks go, I, I got to make all these cookies and I got to make these brownies. I got to do all these for my coworkers and do all those things. And you go home and you see Larry, you're like, Larry, oh, good to see you. Yeah. Work will never love you back. No. Yeah. I've done it. That's something that I really know. Yeah. Um, last couple ones. Uh, take to Check this out. Don't take them to a place to eat that you have been before with your ex. You know what I mean? You don't want to show up and are like, hey, Steve, how are you? Good to see you again. And then your significant other's like, uh, we've never been here before. Oh, yeah. Don't good do that. Don't good do advice. That. And then last but not least, this is for you, Dave. Yeah. Drum roll. You ready? Ready. Here we go. Don't make promises this afternoon that you can't keep later tonight. Okay. <laughs> Does that have to do with... Buying chocolate or something else? <laughs> Never mind. Thank you, Jeeves. You're welcome, Brad. Between you and Mickey, uh, <laughs> you're making Dave blush daily now. I don't know. I just, I just feel like I'm living in a, some future world that I don't understand. <laughs> what are your do? Do you have a do or a don't, Dave? <laughs> just don't screw it up. That's, that's my go-to rule on just about everything. That's cute. Thank you, Jeeves. 35. Paul Holden has his preview of spring, which is happening right now at the convention center. But first, we're going to bring in Kyra News Radio's Matt Markovich, who has details of that last-minute vote on rent control and a bill making it easier for inmates to get out of prison sooner. Matt. Hey, Dave. Uh, I heard you talking about all the nicknames there and some legislative trivia. You know, they couldn't pass the state stone or the state clam this year. No. Uh, Sorry about all that. Bummer. But, you know, here's some trivia. Guess how many votes were taken in the House and the Senate this legislative session, and the vote did not pass? I have no idea. None. None. Every vote, wow. pa- everything before the House and Senate, even in the committee, mm-hmm. passed. And this 
plays into what we're going to talk about here because Democrats are in control. Andy Billig is the lead Democrat in the Senate. Uh, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Lori Jenkins, is the lead Democrat in the House. And they don't bring a bill to the floor or into a committee, and the committee chairs do this, unless they know it, they counted the votes, and it's going to pass. So we talk about last minute. So yesterday was a big day for the legislature. They had to pass all the bills out of the House or Senate. If it originated in the House or Senate, they had to pass that on the floor by 5 o'clock yesterday. And we've been waiting for this rent stabilization bill uh dave you called it rent control so that already tells you that you're a republican because they (laughs) call all yeah (laughs) well there is some control involved isn't it i know but it's all about the language dave you know about that okay Okay. and uh so at 455 five minutes before the deadline she brought up the rent stabilization bill why well i think by that time she counted all her votes she knew she had could pass it and that's what happened. Uh, they passed it now near party line vote, 54-43 by 43. And I didn't go into the rosters there. That meant that some Democrats joined Republicans in voting no against it. All the Republicans voted no. Yeah. And it limits the rent increase to 7% annually. And you, as you said in, a little few minutes earlier, it also includes a longer notification period of a rent increase, no increases during the first rental year. There's a cap on late fees. Here's Representative Emily Alvarado, the Demo- Democrat and the bill's co-sponsor. Unreasonable rent increases threatens the fabric and well-being of our communities. The situation is dire. It's a monumental decision because no other legislative body that I could see has ventured into the gray area of what is rent control and what is what is not because the state has had a prohibition on rent control since 1981. Landlords have had the flexibility to raise rents by any amount they want as renters have been and renters, uh, the, the Republicans argue that renters are being priced out of their areas where they go to school and where they work. So supporters of House Bill 2114 don't call it rent control. They call it rent stabilization. That's why Republicans like Chris Corey are calling it rent control. If we want to stabilize rents, Madam Speaker, we need to build more housing. Unfortunately, this bill will have the exact opposite impact of that, thus leading to more rent increases, fewer availability, and more of the problem that this underlying bill is trying to address. So the pressure was on for House Democrats to pass something by 5 o'clock yesterday because its companion bill, it's almost word for word, Senate Bill 5961 failed to clear the Senate Committee on Housing. So now the House bill, because of what happened yesterday, goes to the Senate, and I believe it's going to get a lukewarm response because of what happened on the uh, companion bill, Dave. So, I mean, the issue here, because we've we've heard from the uh, the uh, real estate companies who are against this, is whether rent control, if they pass it, would backfire by uh, pushing more uh, landlords just pull out of the market because they're not Correct. sure they could meet expenses. Correct. You know that that the the housing the available renting uh, housing. Uh, how me say the available housing for rent will diminish. Yeah. And that goes counter to what everybody wants. Um, and that's what they, they said. That's what's happened in Portland. The, yeah. um, so was, was there any was there any movement on making it easier to build homes by streamlining the permit process? Which oh, I yeah, there's a is... lots of there's a lots of housing bills. And I just yeah. haven't been bringing. I just picked the bills that are most controversial. Yeah. So there's a lot of support for some housing bills out there that have been passing. Uh, but it's. 
you know, this is a, a top topical one, and that's why I brought it up because of the lacement last minute thing. But there was also another bill yesterday that it had the closest vote of any bill so far, either in the Senate or the House, and it dealt with resentencing of prisoners in uh, in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, early in the day, the House passed a bill giving convicted felons an easier path out of prison without relying on the governor's decision to commute their sentence. House Bill 2001 passed on a near-party line vote, 51-46. That's a real real tight vote total, Uh, just five votes. Seven Democrats joined all the Republicans in trying to vote it down. They did not succeed. Now, the bill establishes a process for certain persons convicted of a felony to petition the court to modify their original sentence. Now, here's the conditions. They have had to have served at least 10 years uh, if they're over 18. Uh, They had to serve at least seven years if the offense they committed at 17 or younger. They had to do seven years in jail. The person has to have the prosecuting attorney's consent for the resentencing. And the only crime that's excluded... Uh, excluded from all this is aggravated murder in the first degree. That means any other serious crimes like any kind of rape, armed robbery, kidnapping, felony assault, they're all eligible for resentencing. And it's more of not what how the crime happened. It's just if you did any of these crimes after 10 years, you're going to get a notice from the Department of Corrections saying, hey, you can go have your, your sentence resentenced. Now, the bill sponsored... Representative Tara Simmons of Bremerton, she often speaks about her time in prison, says people have made mistakes and people deserve a second chance. No matter what anyone says today, I know in my heart that this bill is a beautiful and healing masterpiece by doing something so simple, giving defense counsel the same right that a prosecutor has to bring a motion before a judge when a sentence no longer serves the interests of justice. Now, the key to this legislation is its intent, in the, and this is language from the bill, to reverse the original sentence if it, quote, no longer serves the interest of justice and the person, unquote. Now, Bill, I'm going to skip down, uh, Dave, I'm going to skip down to the opposition voices, like Republicans like Spencer Hutchins of Gig Harbor. He raised concerns about potential expansion of judicial powers and fairness. That is why in our democratic republic, we expect that if you disobey the laws and cause harm to another person and to our community, there is a cost. This bill reverses those costs. That is a price too high for our society to pay. And one final thought, Dave, I'll wrap up with this, is that... uh, Prisoners are often granted early release based on good conduct while in prison. We've heard about that. It sometimes shortens the sentence by a third. But the power to shorten a sentence or excuse it outright has always resided with the governor. So this bill would give the Superior Court judge the power to do nearly the same thing. That's what's precedent setting about it. It also has a $20 million price tag, and we have a backlog of court cases. So there's a lot of reasons against this bill, but I wanted to bring it up. It now heads to the Senate. Um, and we'll see what happens. All right, Matt Markovich from the legislature. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. And that's Mickey time. Mickey Gomez is here, and so is potential love scam victim David Burbank. And so, Mickey, you're coming in here to tell us that if you go looking for romance online, mm-hmm. you could get scammed? Absolutely, what? yes. If you're Crazy. looking, I know, right? Who would have thought? If you're looking for online love, like Dave said, scammers are looking for you. The FBI says there's a big scam happening right now called pig butchering, which I think is 
just the worst. Pig butchering. Pig butchering. Let me explain it to you. Yes. All right. Uh, the reason why they call it that is because that's what scammers call their victims. They fatten them up, Aww. so to speak. And then when it comes time, the scammers will get their online love interest to make deposits into fake cryptocurrency websites. That's the butchering part. Once it happens a few times, the relationship is cut off. In fact, the DOJ seized more than $112 million from pig butchering scams last year. Can I please, I just have one question. When the, yeah. when when you're having a relationship with somebody and the word cryptocurrency comes yeah. up, why wouldn't you immediately <laughs> just turn your computer off? You know, I... I your mic's not on, Sully. Sorry. I, well, I know that because I don't, I, I don't want to do anything but laugh like Holly because I don't I do the same thing. I'm like, <laughs> hello, red flags. This, this has happened to one of my aunts. Oh, no. And she unfortunately, she thought the man, she met him, first of all, uh-huh. online playing pool. Okay. Okay. They, right. they have these pool tournaments online. Right. And he met her through one of the chats, started courting her. She believed he he was who he said he was. And she fell in love. And she took out a second mortgage on her home. Stop it. And she gave him $70,000. And then... I'm not even going to give my own husband $70,000. I know. I know. Would you give somebody you wow. met online? He broke up with her and... Then she had to come to us and say, I'm going to lose my house if I don't get help. So the family rallied behind her and helped her save her house. They never found him? They never found him. She would not report it because of the shame. Right. I wanted to report oh. it, but I, I'm, I, I can't do it for her. But it was never reported. Hmm. Yeah. So, David, tell me your situation. Yeah, so I have to be kind of vague about this because it's uh, I'll just call them a, a family friend sort of tangentially. Um, and, and I only know about this mostly from hearsay from other members of the family. But it, it's a situation and this is a, an older woman, a woman in her 70s who has a husband, has kids became infatuated with a person who messaged them on Facebook claiming to be uh, a a television star in another country, that they had this vast amount of wealth. And from what this person has told us... <laughs> Poor day. <laughs> from what this person has told us, they have not given any money to this TV star. Instead, this TV star has sent them large sums of money in supposedly certain accounts, not... not connected to reputable banks here in the U.S., but okay. through other online services, and they are uh, so determined to think that this is a real person. There have been several instances in which they're going to meet up with this person. They're going to fly to the country. This person's going to fly to the U.S. Do we know Keeps the end game off. for this person if they're supposedly the sending money? The end game money? is to meet the person, meet the, the TV star in person, leave their current spouse Whoa. and wow. and live their new life with this uh, rich, younger But so far, man. no money has been lost by either party? Again, this is hearsay for okay. me, and this person certainly has probably told the story through their own lens of, like Mickey said, kind of shame mm-hmm. and not maybe not understanding the situation fully herself. Um, but supposedly, she has not given any money to this person. This person has quote unquote, given money to her. So, so well, I want to tell you what the FBI says. OK, yeah. they say that if listen, if you're looking for love, especially on Valentine's Day, where a lot of people are vulnerable. Number one, if it sounds too good to be true, 
It is. Okay. Number two, if your online love interest that you met on a dating site wants to make it officially immediately and get off all dating apps, run. If your online interest starts to say we, when we do this or when we or marriage or they start talking about the future and future kids, that's a red flag. Hmm. Bad grammar, possibly punctuation is another indicator. And if they start to talk about money issues like their rent is due and their paycheck bounced or um, the government is cutting off their money, things like that, run Block that person and you need to report them. Also, if you don't think that the picture, some a lot of times these scammers use fake pictures, you can go to images.google.com, search that image to find out if that person really is who they say they are and report these crimes. Yes. No you amount know, of shame is worth $70,000. In the back of our computer, there's a jack that plugs into a thing with flashing lights. You just pull that out. <laughs> Cut yourself off. Yes. Or you could go out in public and actually meet people. That, that could, that sometimes that's Overrated. Apparently, Thank you, you haven't dated in the modern world. You're welcome. <laughs> what, that still doesn't work? Hi, how you doing? Nice I've to meet you. I've never online dated either. We have similar interests.